I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. As usual, there's a, an outline of my message on the back of the bulletin with some blanks to be filled in. Now, I want you to fill in those blanks because I want you to be my partners in preaching. Because if you're ready, there is a good chance someone will ask you, what in the world did the preacher say today? And you can say, well, I'm so glad you asked. I happen to have a summary of the message right here. And then you'll be ready to be my partner in preaching. Let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. Methodists and Baptists generally have hold each other in such high esteem and have such mutual respect and love that we often tell stories about ourselves to each other. This story is about a Baptist pastor in a small town. He was greatly beloved by his congregation, but there was only one problem. In almost every sermon, he had to talk about baptism by immersion, baptism by putting people under the water. Now, the people agreed with him, otherwise they wouldn't have been Baptist, but they just grew tired of hearing it every Sunday. So the deacons got together and worked out a plan because they didn't want to hurt the pastor's feelings. Two of the deacons were authorized to put this plan into operation. So they went to see the pastor. They said, Brother Pastor, you know most of the business leaders here in town, we meet for coffee mid-morning down at the coffee shop almost every weekday, and we talk about everything, including churches and preachers. And it's conceded that you are the best preacher in town, no doubt about it. Even the Methodists and Presbyterians agree to that. Of course, what do they know about great preaching? But even they uh, agree that, that you're the best. And so we got to talking about you the other day, and, and we who belong to the, your church, we, maybe we got a little carried away bragging about you, how good you are. One word led to another, and finally we said, let me tell you, he's so good that we could hand him a Bible verse written on a piece of paper moments before sermon time, and he, without any preparation, could deliver a spellbinding sermon on that verse. Well, the Methodist and Presbyterian said, ah, oh, he's good, but he's not that good. We don't believe he can do that. Well, preacher, we went out on a limb, and we said, not only can he do it, he's going to do it this Sunday. And some of those Methodists and Presbyterians are going to be here. So, preacher, please don't cut off that limb we went out on. Well, what pastor could refuse such a challenge as that? So the pastor agreed. So then the deacons went to work to find a verse that had absolutely nothing to do with baptism by immersion. They finally settled on Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They said, surely that one is safe. Following Sunday, moments before sermon time, a deacon walks up front, hands a piece of paper to the preacher with that verse written on it. Preacher steps into the pulpit and he says, brothers and sisters, 
The text for my sermon today is Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if my memory of geography serves me correctly, the earth that the Lord created was one-fourth land and three-fourths water. <laughs> and that watery part reminds me of the subject that is really on my heart today, baptism by immersion. <laughs> yeah. You know, if a preacher has a magnificent obsession, he's going to get around to it sooner or later, usually sooner. St. Paul had a magnificent obsession, and it was the cross. No matter what he started out talking about, writing about, pretty soon he made a beeline for the cross. Indeed, he wrote to the Corinthians, the, the Christians at Corinth, and he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I share that kind of obsession with the cross. It's the greatest valentine in history sent straight from the heart of God to sinners like you and me. Without the cross, we have no good news to preach. Now, our scripture lesson today reminds us that the ground beneath the cross is level. That is, nobody is good enough to get to heaven without a Savior, and nobody is so bad as to be beyond the reach of the Savior's love. In other words, my chances of going to hell without a Savior are exactly the same as those of the worst, drug, the worst terrorist in Iran. But if by chance I claim Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, my chances of going to heaven are exactly the same as those of Billy Graham and the Pope. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The only difference between the purest saint and the foulest sinner is that the saint has found mercy at the foot of the cross. Many years ago, when I was preparing to be ordained, there was a meeting at Washington Street Church in Columbia of all the seminarians who were going through a uh, process of being ordained. The leaders of the conference wanted to meet with us and make sure that we were taking the right steps at the right time. There must have been 35 or 40 of us seminary students gathered in the fellowship hall of the church. I looked across this group and I happened to see a guy named Bruce. I hadn't seen Bruce in 10 years. Bruce and his family had been part of my father's church in a town in upstate South Carolina. And Bruce, as I remembered him, was a hellion of the first order. The only reason he came to church was his parents made him. He would often sneak out of Sunday school and play hooky. His language was horrible. And here he is in a group of seminary students preparing for the ministry. So I worked my way across the crowd, and I finally got to him, and I said, Bruce, it is so good to see you after all these years. But I must tell you, I'm amazed that God has called you to preach. And Bruce smiled and said, you know, Brother Bill, I was fixing to say the same thing to you. <laughs> the ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of us are sinners saved by grace. Our scripture lesson today declares two important truths. First, all of us are equally sinners. I didn't say all of us sin equally. I said all of us are equally sinners. In verse 9 of our scripture, it says Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, and that includes all of us. Now, the Greek phrase under sin 
is the same phrase used to describe the authority that a Roman centurion, a company commander in the Roman army, had over the 100 troops in his company. They were under his command. And Paul is saying here that in our natural condition, we are under the command of sin, which means that in our natural condition, we have a bent toward disobedience, a bias toward evil, a tendency to rebel against God. We're like automobiles with the front end out of line, tilted toward the ditches of sin. My wife and I, well, mostly my wife, brought two little boys into the world. And we thought they were about perfect. Looked a lot like some of those that we had up front today. We thought they were just about perfect. But when they were still tiny little things, we saw stark rebellion in their eyes. Now, we had never done anything but good for them. We were loving all the way. But they would shake their chubby little fist in our face and say, no. Now, maybe they were different from your kids, but I doubt it. And you know something? They didn't want to share. Uh-uh. We had to insist that they share. But we never had to teach them to be selfish. It came into DNA, part of their natural condition. All of us come into the world with a sin heritage, all the way back from Adam. It's part of our DNA. Now, our secular culture teaches the opposite of that. I mean, if you listen to the talking heads on television, what they will say, if not overtly, certainly between the lines, is all people are naturally good, but, but for some reason, some strange reason, they occasionally do bad things. That's what you hear on television. In fact, uh, there's a national bagel company that has as its motto the following words. People are like bagels. There are many varieties, but basically they are all good. Now, I don't know about bagels, whether they're all good or not, but I know about people. They're not naturally good. Yes, all of us have potential for good, especially in relationship with Jesus Christ but we are not naturally good. In verse 10 of our scripture, we read, there is no one righteous, not even one. And that truth is repeated down in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The golfer Tiger Woods is doing really well this weekend. But years ago, when he first faced up to the sex scandal that wrecked his marriage and almost took him out of the world of golf, Tiger made this truthful observation, and I quote him, you start coming to the truth of who you really are, and that can be very ugly, end of quote. Tiger spoke for all of us. We may not have killed anybody, but we've despised some people, haven't we? And Jesus said, if we allow brooding anger to lurk in our hearts, we will be liable for judgment. Have we repented of that sin? We may not have committed adultery, but we are no strangers to lust, are we? And Jesus said, if, we, if you look upon someone with lust, you have committed adultery in the heart. 
have we repented of that? We often choose up sides along racial or class lines, fracturing God's community. Have we repented of that? We say in God we trust, but often our trust is less in God and more on the money in, on which that motto is printed. Have we repented of that? One of the most dangerous drugs in America is not illegal. It has enslaved over 40 million people. And it brings in $97 billion in profit every year. I'm talking about pornography, especially the internet variety. Experts claim that pornography was a significant factor in 56% of the divorces in America last year. And the sin of pornography respects no boundaries of education or race or social class or finances. It's an equal opportunity slavery. And in all probability, there are some people in this congregation today who are addicted to pornography. Isn't it time to repent and change? One day, a, a young college student went to the campus minister at her college because she had a problem she wanted to discuss with him. And she sat down with him and she said to him, Sir, here's the problem I have. I'm having guilt feelings ever since I let my boyfriend move in with me. Her wise pastor said, you're having guilt feelings because you're guilty. Those guilt feelings are early warning signals from a loving Heavenly Father that you're on a dangerous path that will separate you from God and lead you in dangerous ways. The late great Baptist preacher Adrian Rogers used to say, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. I'm going to say that again because some may want to write that down. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And there's only one proper way to deal with guilt, and that's to repent and with God's help change direction. We all need to do that because we are equally sinners. That's the first truth. Here comes the second great truth in our scripture for today. It is this. We are loved equally by Jesus Christ. And one of the most wonderful sentences in all of Scripture is right here in Romans 3. It's a long sentence, verses 23 through 25, but oh, is it glorious. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. Now, if that isn't the heart of the gospel message, I don't know what is. Notice it says here that our salvation is a gift. We can do nothing to earn it. Jesus paid the premium when he died on the cross. As St. Paul reminds us in another place, we have been bought at a price. And our proper attitude, in the words of the great old hymn, is 
Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. In, 20, in verse 25, we find a reference to the blood of Jesus. I don't know if you know it or not, but some modern church people are offended by this. Yes, they take offense at the mention of the blood of Jesus. They wish that God could have found a method of salvation that was less messy, gory, cleaned up. They're squeamish at this point. Indeed, there are some of our modern hymns that have left out any hymns that mention the blood of Jesus, including the great one by William Cowper. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And indeed, a few years ago, there was a seminary professor who said that the very idea of God sending his son into the world to die on a cross for the sins of people is equivalent to divine child abuse. Now, I promise you this, if a thunderstorm were going on, I would not stand beside that seminary professor. I promise you. Ah, rather than being offended by the blood of Jesus, I glory in it. I glory. I thank God for the cross of Christ. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Every drop of Jesus' blood is precious. Every inch of ground it touched is holy ground. Jesus' blood contained our spiritual DNA, the power to give us a second birth. My late great friend pastor in, in Texas, Bill Henson, used to say, if there had been any other way for God to save the world without sending his son to the cross, God would have been a monster to have allowed it. But there was no other way. A broken moral law separated a holy God from sinners like you and me. And only the cross could satisfy both the justice and the mercy of God. Nobody but Jesus was good enough and great enough and loving enough to atone for the sins of all believers. I want you to just imagine for a minute that God were to offer you a wonderful gift. Let's suppose that God gave you the gift of healing people. I mean miraculously. Let's suppose that God gave you the gift that if you laid your hand on the head of anybody, whatever disease they had would be instantly cured. If you had that gift, you would be the most sought-after person on earth. But let's suppose the gift came with a catch. That if you accept the gift, then every disease that you heal has to be transferred to you. Ah, would you then, under that condition, accept the gift? Well, you might say, I would accept the gift for my family and for my closest friends. But would I accept it for everybody, rank strangers? No way. No way. Jesus accepted the gift for all humanity, every single person. He took upon himself the worst disease anyone can suffer, the disease of sin. That's a disease worse than cancer, worse than Alzheimer's, 
worse than any of those diseases. Why do I say that? Cancer, Alzheimer's can only affect you in this world, in this life, not for the next one. The sin disease can not only destroy you in this life, but can separate you from God for all eternity. Jesus took the worst disease of humanity upon himself. And for every believer who trusted him by faith, Jesus in turn covered them with his righteousness. Says that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. What a trade. What a transfer. What a savior. And one day when I get to the portals of eternity, oh, nobody's going to pull my record or see my sin. Instead, I'll be covered by the righteousness of Christ and welcomed in. In closing, I want to remind you of a great preacher named William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army. A lot of people know William Booth founded the Salvation Army in 1865, but not many know he was a Methodist preacher. He was. And in the following decades, the, the Salvation Army has served millions of people across the world, especially the urban poor. William Booth died in 1912, and his funeral was held in the great St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Thousands packed into the cathedral for the service, and thousands more stood outside. And down at the front was a former prostitute who had been converted by the Salvation Army, and she was seated by the, beside the Queen of England. And in the course of that service, this former prostitute leaned over to the queen and whispered concerning Booth, he cared for the likes of me. He cared for the likes of me. So like his Savior. Because you see, in God's eyes, that former prostitute was just as precious as the Queen of England. Those convicted murderers down on death row are just as dear to the heart of God as are the bishops of the United Methodist Church. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And there's an old gospel song that declares my message so beautifully, and it has a chorus of these words. There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you.